This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 11th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. What role do the Feds play in compelling financial institutions to extend mortgage credit and then keep those mortgages on their books? The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is looking at eliminating some income requirements for a given level of borrowing. Cato's Diego Zuluaga walks us through the Byzantine system of rules that govern home lending. Who governs? Uh, the standards that apply to the issuance of mortgages in the United States. I know that banks have have rules that they themselves adopted because they want to do well by their shareholders. But in terms of what's required, uh, who governs? Well, Caleb, as ever in the U.S. when it comes to financial regulation, several different entities uh, are involved. In the first place, in terms of consumer protection, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, issues a set of regulations that govern what sort of mortgages are exempt from potential liability for lenders, meaning that if something bad happened in the future, could the borrower then sue the financial institution for having missold them uh, a product? The Bureau sets the standards by which financial institutions can make Make themselves exempt if they issue a particular kind of product. In addition to that, the Federal Housing Finance Agency is the regulator of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which, as many listeners will know, uh, purchase about 50% of single-family mortgages currently originated in the United States. And as major purchasers, they have a role in setting underwriting standards as well, because whatever they're willing to purchase is what a lot of lenders will originate. And the FHFA is currently acting not only as the regulator, but as the owner of Fannie and Freddie, because the government bailed Fannie and Freddie out in 2008. And these entities are still in government conservatorship. So the FHFA also has a role. And then finally, the banking regulators, which set capital standards uh, that govern how much, how many dollars banks have to hold of their own capital against risky assets that they hold on their balance sheets, risky loans that they have made. They also indirectly uh, set the standards of mortgage lending in some capacity. So uh, the debt to income uh, ratio is seems like a pretty important uh, metric for uh, banks deciding whether or not to issue uh, mortgages or originate mortgages for uh, potential homeowners. Uh, what go- who has to use that? Uh, what what rules govern how that uh, metric is used in lending? So there are typically three key measures that we would look at in terms of determining the risk of a particular mortgage. The first is the borrower's credit score, which summarizes their history of uh, borrowing and the how long they've held accounts and how much credit uh, they have used out of the available credit that they have. In addition to that, we would look at what's called the loan-to-value ratio, that is, of the value of the home that is being financed, what percentage comes from alone. And then finally, the ratio you mentioned, debt to income, measures month to month what percentage of a borrower's gross income is spent on debt obligations. Now, specifically for mortgages in the US right now, we have a set of regulations that govern the type of mortgage that would be exempt from liability, as I described earlier. And in addition to that, in 2013, the CFPB set a hard threshold uh, for how high the DTI ratio could be, and that was 43%. So for a mortgage that is originated by a lender, for the lender of that 
uh, of that particular mortgage to be exempt from future liability. The borrower's uh, debt obligations um, when gross income is considered and when the mortgage payment is included must not exceed 43%. But a big loophole was created at that same time because Fannie and Freddie were exempted from that particular requirement. It was believed in the first place that because Fannie and Freddie set their own underwriting requirements, they would be able to regulate the risk of the mortgages they purchase and they would have an incentive to do so. But in the second place, there were fears that such a hard limit on DTI would potentially impair the mortgage market, would make it very difficult for borrowers that otherwise were qualified to secure home credit. And so the remedy was a temporary patch, as it became known, for the two GSEs, for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, to uh, enable a market for higher DTI mortgages to develop while the private sector was recovering from the financial crisis. For the reasons I mentioned, the belief that Fannie and Freddie can adequately regulate the amount of risky mortgages that they purchase is dubious because they're, after all, underwritten by the taxpayer. They're very thinly capitalized right now. And unless there's a strong drive from the FHFA, their regulator, to limit the extent to which they take risk, we can see where the political incentive points to, to the extension of the maximum credit possible because that earns politicians votes at the expense of the taxpayer. I can remember uh, George W. Bush uh, as late as 2006 and maybe 2007 uh, crowing in speeches about the highest home ownership rate in, in many decades and this was, uh, he viewed that as a success of his administration. Indeed, and it was a mirage as uh, it was revealed barely months after that, because what we see in the US is a consistent stable trend of around 62 to 64% home ownership from the 1960s to the early 2000s. And then you have a significant acceleration up to 67, 68% for a few years. And then after the financial crisis, a rapid decline back to trend. So it was an illusion that a greater percentage of American households had in fact become homeowners. It was fake because this was all bought on credit and a lot of these people didn't have any equity in their homes. They didn't own them. The bank owned them. And, and when economic circumstances turned, the bank became the residual owner because these people couldn't uh, pay back their loans and they couldn't sell their home for more than uh, the loan had, that, 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 than the dollar amount of the loan. So that, uh, that, that was a very short-lived phenomenon and not one that is particularly positive in my view. I would also say that the evidence since the CFPB rule setting that DTI threshold came into place, one of the things that's become apparent is that when you compare mortgages like for like on the same terms, um, purchased by Fannie and Freddie versus held in portfolio by banks or otherwise not complying with their underwriting standards, what you see is that Fannie and Freddie mortgages are as a rule riskier. And that has become a concern for the CFPB, uh, not only because of the risk that Fannie and Freddie might present, which is not really a concern for the CFPB, but because the expectation was that Fannie and Freddie's role would steadily diminish. But if they're comfortable purchasing riskier mortgages than is the private market or other market participants, then we cannot really envisage a situation in which their role, their footprint in the mortgage market declines. And of course, two entities that are government sponsored, having an ever-growing footprint in the market cannot be good from a systemic or a, or a financial prudence perspective.
help me understand this. Um, banks that or financial institutions that uh, originate mortgages, um, certain mortgages they might prefer to keep in a portfolio or keep portions of in in their own portfolio, and others they might seek to get rid of, that is, sell to uh, an organization like Fannie and Freddie. The dividing line between deciding to keep or get rid of, get off your books, those uh, mortgages, is it as simple as how good is this mortgage? How credibly do we believe that this borrower is going to make good on these payments? There are a few things to consider. There are requirements that financial institutions hold a portion of the mortgages they originate. There are also some regulatory advantages, particularly for small banks, in terms of holding uh, mortgages rather than selling them on because some of the exemptions from liability that I described earlier wouldn't apply to them in those situations. But as a rule, if you're a financial institution and you originate individual mortgages, the incentive will be to retain those that are safer and to sell on those that are riskier, provided that they return the same to you. And then the key question becomes whether the person buying those loans from you actually has an incentive to um, lend prudently and to guarantee prudently, which is really what Fannie and Freddie do. And my concern is that between the government conservatorship and the system of cross-subsidization of risk that we have on the secondary market for mortgages in America, that as a result of that, there isn't much incentive to control risk uh, of Fannie's and Freddie's portfolio because ultimately uh, their political decisions that govern a lot of their uh, underwriting requirements and capital requirements and so on. And uh, those tend to trump economic uh, decision-making. Now, there has been a change in policy in terms of how Fannie and Freddie are regulated from about mid-2019. Uh, there's been a significant tapering down on the riskier end of mortgages, that is high loan-to-value and high DTI mortgages. But the question is whether that's enough and whether in a world in which, as the FHFA is obligated to do and the government will be obligated to do, um, in, in which eventually Fannie and Freddie return to the private market, whether they will be in a position and will face the incentives to adequately underwrite risk, because that's ultimately what caused them to be bailed out in the first place. So uh, walk me through this. If if this uh, the plan that is to change the definition of a qualified mortgage and draw a brighter line between what is qualified and what is not qualified, uh, that change, what does that mean, one, for uh, the taxpayer? What does it mean uh, in general for the mortgage market? And what does it mean for people who do not own homes who would like to? Sure. The big item of news in all of this is that recently it transpired that the CFPB in revamping its qualified mortgage ability to repay rule, which is what governs these mortgage standards, will get rid of that 43% hard threshold, which is something that financial institutions and realtors and other housing market participants had called for for a long time because they found the standards for income verification which are necessary in order to enforce a DTI ratio. Very difficult to navigate, potentially arbitrary and not particularly conducive to prudential lending. Their argument was that perfectly creditworthy people who, for example, have a lot in assets but are 
small business owners and therefore have very variable income, that they wouldn't qualify for a mortgage. I have some sympathy for that argument, and I'm certainly not a fan of very prescriptive regulations. And I think the QMATR rule from the Bureau was one of those overly prescriptive regulations. My concern, however, is that what will replace it will be too lax and not reflective of risk. Specifically, the consensus view among the housing market participants is that a standard that takes into account a mortgage's interest rate and then defines anything below a particular interest rate, meaning you take a reference rate, you add a few percentage points, and then you say anything within this range is acceptable, that that would be too lax. The argument is that the interest rate measures the price of a loan, and the price of a loan will be related to borrower risk, and therefore a standard of that nature is both very parsimonious, a very sort of uh, small, succinct summary of risk, but also very accurate. The problem is that in the mortgage market, we have um, a situation in which the mortgages of riskier borrowers are subsidized by the mortgages of lower risk borrowers. And so interest rates don't actually reflect the individual borrower's risk. So what a standard such as that would do is it would make it more attractive than it is now, potentially, to lend to higher risk borrowers. So what would normally apply in the private market, because of Fannie and Freddie's dominance, and because of other interventions that the government has made into housing through the Department for Housing and Urban Development, subsidizing low-income mortgage loans, uh, price the price of a loan doesn't really reflect risk. So I have concerns that the replacement will be very interesting and attractive and profitable for the housing industry, for developers, for realtors, uh, even for some lenders, but that it will compromise safety and soundness and ultimately put taxpayers at risk, but also lead to borrowers uh, finding themselves underwater if the economic situation changes. So what I proposed as an alternative is retaining some form of a DTI ratio at the current levels, but expanding the definition of a qualified mortgage to take into account the fact that you cannot hold a lender liable for a loan they made years and years ago. It is absolutely unrealistic to expect a lender, whether they're a bank or a mortgage company, to remain responsible for outcomes that happen four or five years Hence, when you underwrite a mortgage, you might do it in the very best of faiths, but then economic circumstances change. We have a major financial crisis or a major recession, and a lot of people go into unemployment, and they uh, find themselves in foreclosure or unable to repay their mortgages or in uh, delinquency. You cannot expect the lender to be responsible for that. Um, If the loan went into delinquency straight after having been originated, that might be strong evidence that something went wrong with the underwriting. So the alternative I've proposed is after two years of origination, if the loans are held in portfolio by a bank, but perhaps even if they've been sold on, they would be considered to be qualified, meaning the liability uh, on the lender would no longer apply. And I think that would alleviate a lot of the concerns that financial institutions have without some of the perverse incentives that I feel that this interest rate measure will create. Diego Zuluaga is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.